Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Argus podcast. This week, we are joined by best-selling author and creator of the Roy Grace series, Peter James. Are you ready? Let's go. Hello, Peter. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Christian. Great to be here. I must say, for, for those listening, Peter, you're sat in an, what I imagine is a study of sorts with police helmets and, and uniforms around the room. Is that something for inspiration or is that just kind of memories from over the years? It's a bit of both. Yeah, my, my office is at the top of a 72-foot tower. And I have a, I've, over the years, I've sort of collected police memorabilia from, from around the world. Obviously, a lot of it from Sussex. Uh, everywhere I travel on book promotion, I try to meet police officers. And because I think we learn so much about the culture of, of another country through the eyes of its police, and it's so very different. I've been out with police in Moscow, Munich, LA, um, India, everywhere you go, the whole kind of policing culture is different. And, and police know that I kind of like to collect stuff. So pretty well everywhere I go, I get given helmets or badges or whatever. So I put as many on display as I can. So kind of going back to the to the start, you were born in Brighton, is that right? And grew up in Sussex? Yeah, I was born in Brighton. My dad was from Brighton. My my mum was a refugee from from the war from Vienna. And and they met at the start of the war. My dad, uh, his family had a a small sort of drapery store in nowhere Churchill Squares, which sort of went defunct during the war. It's called Hetherington's. I've kind of tried to look up its history as much as I can. There's a little bit on it. In terms of where your your love or interest of crime came from growing up, was that something that you've always had or was that something that you've developed over time? Kind of developed over time. I I, I mean it was interesting as a teenager growing up in Brighton. And Brighton was a very rough, tough place back in the, in the 50s and 60s. I, mean, I remember when I went to boarding school in Surrey, uh, people would say, where are you from? I'd, I'd actually say uh, Sussex. Because if you said Brighton, people would go, really? You live in Brighton? <laughs> now it's like the other way around. Brighton's become like the, the coolest, hippest place in the whole of the UK. And, and, all, and for years, we lived out in the country. And people would say, where are you from? I'd say Brighton. And so there was that element. I mean, literally, there were certain names of Brighton crime families. And if you recognise one of them when you went in a pub on a Thursday or Friday night, you'd get up because you knew it would kick off into a fight at some point. But when I was, what the big change for me was when I was 14, and I read Graham Greene's novel, Brighton Rock. And I remember finishing that book and putting it down and thinking to myself, one day I'm going to try and write a crime novel set in Brighton that's maybe 10% as good as this book. And I think if anyone listening has never read the book, it really must do. Um, have you read it? I, I have. It's a very, I've, I've heard you talk about it before, but it's a very powerful opening line, opening story uh, in general. But it's a good, I imagine for anybody, a good introduction to crime novels or crime stories in general. Yeah, I think, I mean, Graham Greene always called it an entertainment, uh, which is a kind of odd word. For me, it's an out-and-out crime novel. Uh, and as you say, it's got some of the best opening lines, I think. Within three hours of arriving in Brighton, Hale knew they meant to murder him. You know, who's Hale? Why is he in Brighton? How could you not want to read on there? Yeah. And Brighton is such a star of that book as well. He captures, although the book was written in 1937, it could have been written in, in the Brighton of my childhood. 
and I think it's still not entirely irrelevant today too. The, the, still, the atmosphere of a wonderful central character, Pinky, who was this seventeen-year-old boy gangster in charge of a bunch of middle-aged kind of misfit, failed crims. And I think it's got psychologically the darkest ending of any novel ever I can ever remember reading. Did you or have you ever had kind of any inspirations to be a police officer yourself? Was that ever a thought process of yours? No, it was never as, as a kid. Um, never entered my head. And over the years, though, having met so many police and some really great people, I think that if I was like 18 now, I'm wondering what to do with my life. I would consider it quite seriously because it's one of the very few jobs where people can genuinely make a difference to the world, you know, in so many ways. Um, and I think that's one of the things that when the police are criticised, people forget about that aspect of them. When did you sort of start writing? Was that always a career aim for you or was it kind of you fell into that? Yeah, from the age of seven, I wanted to do three things, which was to write books, make films and race cars. <laughs> And I, I used to keep a notebook by my bed. And I remember the first thing I ever put into it was, uh, life's a bowl of custard. It's all right until you fall in. I haven't used that line yet. Um, <laughs> but I I loved, I was an avid kind of reader, particularly for adventure stories and thrillers. And I really wanted to write. But I remember when I was about 12, sitting in class, and I just spent a whole weekend struggling to write a three-page essay. And I picked up a novel, and I thought, how can anybody read like four, 500 pages? I mean, that's just not possible. And then I was 16, I won a school poetry prize. And, and I had one English teacher who really encouraged me. And I, when I left school, I, I flunked. I was at Charterhouse, and I, I kind of spent most of my time chasing girls and smoking dope and being bad. And I, I kind of crawled out with three grade E's in A-level and I desperately wanted to go to Oxford to read English and then the first film school in England started up film and television school at Rosemont. I thought that's where I want to go and while I was there I just I was living in a little bedsit in London and I started writing I wrote my first novel which I was convinced was the great British novel nobody else was convinced unfortunately <laughs> probably very luckily in retrospect uh, I wrote three novels that were never published and then quite rightly so, before I had my kind of fourth book in my late 20s, which, which got published. If you don't mind, talk, can you talk to me about Orson Welles and your connection to him? <laughs> yes, I um, when I was at film school, I was actually living just off the um, Fulham Road in London. I met this very posh girl that I wanted to invite out to dinner, and I didn't have enough money to take her to a fancy restaurant. I, I, my, you know, my dad would give me enough money to get to my get to film school, pay my rent and basic food. So I thought I'm going to have to earn some money. And I, I was walking down a Fulham Road and there was an advert and a news agent. It said, cleaner wanted, ply Mrs. Wells, uh, 10 shillings an hour, which I guess is probably about maybe the equivalent of maybe 10 pounds an hour today's money. So I went round there and I had no, didn't make any connection at all. This nice woman, I guess she was in her 40s, sort of answered the door and she said, really, she said, I was, I was expecting a female. I said, I can clean, honestly. And she sort of gave me a dubious look and she said, all right, she said, Are you, I'll take you on for three hours now and, and see how you do. And if, if you convince me that you can do the job, then I'll We'll try it for a month. So she put me in the kitchen and I was completely lost. I had no idea what to do. I, I'd, um, and I don't mean to sound posh in any way, I, but both of my parents worked. You know, we had the family glove factory. And, and in those days, domestic staff were cheap and we had a live-in cook. And I, I'd basically never been allowed in the kitchen. 
So I had no idea what to do. And I looked, I looked at various drawers and I found a packet of a product called Flash. And there was an advert constantly playing on the television back in those days. It was all around the house, spring clean with Flash. So I kind of read the instructions. It said, tip it into a bucket of hot water. So I did that and I cleaned the kitchen. And Mrs. Wells came back in and she was really impressed. She said, okay, well, I'll try you for a month. And if you can come back two days time, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. So I duly went back and it was a nice house. It wasn't a grand house. It was one of those elegant London sort of terraces just on the sort of verge of sort of Earl's Court and Fulham and Chelsea. And first day there, she wanted me to clean the whole skirting board. So I was on my knees using my trusty flash again. And suddenly there was a sort of thunk and about 20 letters popped through the letterbox. And I looked down, they were all addressed to Orson Wells. And I'm not always the sharpest tack in the box. And I thought, well, the idiot postman, he's sent them, he put them in the wrong house. And I was just literally scooping them up when the front door opened and in came the great man himself. Long coat, with big kind of black hat. And he looked down at me like I was something the cat had dropped. And there was like a million things I wanted to say to him, like, you know, uh, like, you know hi, I'm, 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 I'm trying to get in the film business. I'm, I'm, I'm at film school. Can, can you help me? And I went, <laughs> and he said, good morning. And he kind of stepped over me and went up the stairs and, and disappeared. And he didn't reappear the rest of that morning. And, and I went back two days later, all excited, ready to, ready to really do a pitch to him and discovered he'd gone off to America to make a movie and, and I didn't see him again. At the end of four weeks, Mrs. Wells very politely said to me, she said, you know, I just don't think you're really cut out for this. So I was like, well, it's worked out all right. It's worked out all right. Sort of jumping ahead to the Roy Grace series, where did the character of Roy Grace sort of come from? Is that something that you simply make up or do you take inspiration from real life people? What happened with Roy Grace was my first three novels had been kind of pretty bad spy thrillers. And I, I'd been really upset because they had, they'd been published, but they, they hadn't sold, they hadn't got any kind of traction. And I poured my heart out to a, a friend of my then sister-in-law's who worked for Penguin. And, and she looked at me, she said, why on earth are you writing spy thrillers? You know, what can you ever know about the world of spies? We're up against people like John le Carre, Ian Fleming, who've come out of the security services. You've got to write something that A, you're passionate about, but B, you can actually access and research because people who read, the fact they're reading means they're intelligent. And, and, and readers like to not just read a good story, but learn something about life, about the world we live in, about whatever subject the book is about. And I literally, about a week later, my then wife and I got burgled. Uh, we were living in the center of Brighton then, quite near the station. And a young detective called Mike Harris came to take fingerprints. And he looked at my, my first book and he said, oh, if you don't want any research help, the police give me a call. And he was based at John Street. And his wife, Renata, also worked out of John Street. She was on the child protection unit. And my then wife and I became friends with them. And they invited us to barbecue at their house. They lived in Salt Bean. And we went there for a Sunday barbecue and there were 12 of their friends, all of them police officers. And a real mix of homicide, traffic, response, neighborhood policing, soco. And just talking to them, I thought, wow, no, nobody sees more human life in a 30-year career than, than these people. And when they realized I was genuinely interested, not just out to get a story I could flog to the Argus, they started to trust me and invite me out, go out and spend a day on a response shift, or they'd phone me up and say, we've got an interesting crime scene. And over the next sort of 10 years, I sort of became more and more part of the furniture almost of Sussex Police, and, and uh, everybody knew that they could trust me, and, and I would, what I would write was fair. And I was putting police characters more and more into my 
I was writing psychological thrillers at that point. And then one day a cop said to me, there was a really interesting homicide detective you might like to meet. Uh, and he was based at then Hove Police Station, a guy called David Gaylor. And I remember going to this guy's office and I've never seen an office so untidy in my life. It was just piled blue and green plastic crates bulging with folders and his slightly balding head just visible at the end. And I said, are, are, are you moving? And he laughed and he said, no, he said, I'm, I'm a homicide detective, but I've also been tasked with reopening all the unsolved murders in the county where there's somebody still alive who could benefit from the investigation or where there's still a chance of catching the offender. And he said, each one of these files is the principal case file of an unsolved murder. I'm the last chance each victim has for justice and that the family has for closure. And I loved that kind of very human image. And, and he said, you know, what are you writing at the moment? And I was partway through a thriller called Denial. And he said, tell me about it. So I started telling him and he said, no, 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 your character wouldn't have done that. And why hasn't he got, a, why haven't the police got an outside inquiry team doing this? I don't think your detective would have done that. And I thought, wow, this guy's got a really creative side to him. And we then became friends. He helped me a lot on shaping that book and on the next book. And this was about 1998, 99, and made me realize that what goes into making a, a really good detective is very different to the average television portrayal where you tend to have a rather bolshy, impatient SIO shouting at everyone. But the, the really good homicide detectives are actually very calm people with a really high level of emotional intelligence uh, who tend to bond with the victim's loved ones and, and it becomes personal. Um, and they have almost like a two sides to them. That, you know, they have one side, which is they are incredibly anal because every murder is a huge puzzle, often hundreds if not thousands of pieces that have to be painstakingly put together. But so often they're solved by, by clear blue, out, blue sky out of the box thinking. Uh, so two completely opposing character traits. And they've had both of those in spades. And he got promoted to detective chief superintendent, essentially head of major crimes for Sussex at that time. And this was 2002. And my publisher said to me, have you ever considered creating a detective as a central character? So I went to Dave Gaylor. I said, oh, how would you like to be a fictional cop? And he loved the idea. And he, so he is very much my real life Roy Grace, where it doesn't look like him. But in terms of how he thinks, how he acts, and we've worked together very closely on every book, every Roy Grace book I've written. And we've become really close mates. He was best man when I got married again in 2015. I always joke, you know, we, and we go to homicide conferences in, in America once a year. And I always joke that some people travel with their private detective. I, I travel with my private detective, she's superintendent. Was there ever any thoughts of not having it set in Brighton? And kind of how important is the setting of a crime novel? Obviously, I know you were born here, but why set such a kind of gruesome crime series in your hometown? Well, I have been thanked by the tourist board. They, um, they, they did actually they put a, they put a Roy Grace novel in every hotel in Brighton about five years ago because they reckon it was good for good for trade. Uh, they also put one in every taxi in Brighton at one stage. But serious answer is that I think that it's very important firstly to write about what you know, uh, and you know I know Brighton. Hove and environs pretty much inside out and backwards. And I do think that place is incredibly important. I think that you know, if you look at the world's sort of leading crime writers, past and present, you know, from Ian Rankin, Edinburgh is so much part of his work. You know, with Michael Connolly, Los Angeles is so much part of his. I think every 
town, every city has its own kind of crime. You know, we have a different kind of crime in Brighton to say Manchester. I know we don't fortunately have this like gang, the gun gangs and, and, and that kind of crime. You know, we have, it's always been slightly different, but Brighton's always been a quite a dark place. It goes right back to the kind of Victorian days when, when the railway line opened in around 1842, I think it was. And all the sort of criminals in London. And London was a pretty horrible place to be in, unless you were very rich. So all the criminals in London poured down to Brighton and they brought you know, prostitution, cockfighting, all other kinds of illegal gaming, protection racketeering, and they stayed. You know, I think uh, there's a great line by Noel Coward who once said, ah, dear Brighton, peers, queers, and racketeers. And, and Keith, the late Keith Waterhouse once said that. You know, Brighton has the air of a town which is perpetually helping the police with their inquiry. And it's always had this crime pedigree. In 1932, Brighton was called the crime capital of the UK and the murder capital of Europe. And there is that edginess to it, which I think makes it so exciting. Am I right in thinking there was once a suggestion that the TV adaption could have been based in Scotland? Yeah, the, um, was an offshoot of the BBC optioned it in the very early days, so after the first book, Dead Simple, came out. About two years on, I got a frightfully excited phone call saying, oh, BBC Scotland have offered a pool of money. And I said, why does BBC Scotland want to make a drama set in bright? Oh, no, they've had this great idea that we move it to Aberdeen. I said, has anybody read the books? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, we think we could have Roy Grace transfer to Aberdeen Police. I said, do you know what I think? Foxtrot Oscar. That's a very reasonable response. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was never going to let it. I, I, I'd always said to my agent, I, I'd rather it's never made than made anywhere else. It has to be Brighton. And I'm so pleased I stuck to my guns and it took this part of 15, 16 years. But I think what ITB are, are doing currently is is absolutely fabulous and, and just great for the city too. Hmm. During the filming towards the end of last year, you had a visit to set in Shoreham, I think it was, by the Duchess of Cornwall. How, uh, how was that? She was amazing. I, I remember about five, six years ago, I got a very excited email from a friend saying, get the Daily Mail, look at page five. So I got the Daily Mail, I looked at page five, and there was a photograph of the Duchess in her library, and there were about six Roy Grace books right behind her head. So I, um, and, that, and she said, it, it was a big article about her, and she said that Peter James is one of my two favourite writers. So I wrote to her as a sort of thank you. And since then, we had this sort of correspondence where she would write to me after every book and a you know, handwritten letter and, and, and very always very charming and then she started a, a book club during during covid called the duchess's reading rooms and selected the roy grace novels so i i, I said i asked her if she'd like to come to the set and see some of the filming and she said absolutely and, and she came down and she was she was really good fun and, and she's so natural as well we with these royal visits, they're very prescribed. You know, we're told her helicopter lands at 11. She'll be at Shoreham Harbour. We chose the location of Shoreham Harbour because it's very secure. She'll be there at 11.15. She'll interview for 30 minutes. She'll spend five minutes watching and filming. She'll then spend 15 minutes talking to cast and crew. And then she'll go to upstairs the warehouse um, to have lunch privately. And then she's on to Eastbourne to hospice. So we did all, we had this half hour chat. It was almost surreal. She and I were just sitting on two chairs in this bare warehouse with all her entourage around. And we were just sort of chatting. She was asking me all about Roy Grace. Um, and she's got a great sense of humour. And then did, she watched the filming and then she went around shaking hands with all the cast and crew, not 
not bothering with you know gloves or anything, no masks. Couldn't have been more delightful to them. And then it got to sort of quarter after 12. And I said, fine, I'll leave you to have your lunch. So yeah, come and join me. So I went in and I sat down in front of her and she had a banana and you know, soup in a thermos flask. And one of her ladies in waiting offered me a sandwich. It was just so natural. There's no um, cameo for, for the Duchess. Well, she actually said... I jokingly said, I said, would you, you, know, would you like to be a cameo in the next series? And she said, yes, yeah. maybe I could be a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think she might do something. I'm definitely going to drop her a note and, and say you know, the offer is open. I did see one of your tweets like, uh, it was a few months back, but you did hint at a, uh, a special guest appearance from somebody. And I did think at the time it, it could be. Could it be a royal? But I guess we'll have to have to wait and see. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've also done a cameo in, in, in it myself. That's what I mean. A lot of the a lot of the comments were um, suggesting it could be yourself. Yeah, my wife and I, without without any spoiler, we um play coppers, uh, and, and we're in um. In fact, well, I'm in I'm in two, we're in one of them, which she first one she interviews me on television talking about Henry Solomon the uh, chief constable who was murdered by a burglar back in 1847 and then another she and I are both standing on the beach where one of the dead bodies washed up you have to look hard not to, so you don't miss us because we're only on camera for about half a minute I will be keeping an eye out there in terms of kind of another royal connection your mother also had connections to the royal family I believe is that right yes my mum was Cornelia James and she was glove maker to the Queen and the family has the Royal Warrant. The firm is still going. It's run now by my sister and brother-in-law. And we still make the Queen's gloves and, and many other members of the royal family as well. It's the one connection I jokingly say I have with Shakespeare. And Shakespeare's father was a glove maker. <laughs> there the uh, similarities stop. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that that was based in Havelock Road? Havelock Road, yes. It was there originally for many years. It, was, it had been a Victorian laundry originally, and, and my parents bought it in about 1948, I think. When you write a book, do you think ahead at all about what it might look like on screen? I'm always interested whether that crosses your mind perhaps when you first started writing or perhaps more so now. I think it's kind of, it's a good question. I think it's almost the other way around because I be, for, for many years before I wrote I was able to make a living out of writing. I worked in film and television uh, as a writer and and more as a producer. And I learned quite a lot from that. I remember selling a show to ABC television in the States and I worked on the pilot. In America, they have like 10 writers and sit in this room. They call it the writer's box and everybody chucks in their ideas. One of the first things they said was, you need to have a gag every 14 seconds. And they were serious and it it was the because they reckon at any given moment, 50% of the entire American audience is channel surfing. And if they hit on your, your show and, and there's a gag, well, well, they're kind of laughing at it and the next gag hits and so they kind of stay. I don't put a gag every 14 seconds in a Roy Grace novel, but it taught me the importance of trying to grip the reader and not let them go. So I'm, I'm very conscious that I want to constantly have cliffhangers not just in chapters, but even in paragraphs sometimes, try and keep the readers glued. So I think I have been influenced by film and television, but I don't consciously sit down and think, I oh, now this would make a great set piece in, in a movie or on television. The main thing when I'm writing is to both engage the reader, but also to try to be authentic. Most people have heard of method acting, but you are in some ways, I suppose, a bit of a method writer. Can you tell me about your coffin experience? <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the dumbest things I ever did, or the scariest. <laughs> I, I I do believe in trying to 
put myself through pretty well everything that a character in my book goes through by actually dying. And in Dead Simple, you know, the, the story starts with a wedding night stag party prank. And the guy who's getting married, groomed to be, has always played terrible pranks on his mates. So they decide to pay him back big time by getting him drunk and driving him out into remote woods where they've already dug a grave and they've got a coffin and they're going to put him in the coffin, put the lid on, give him a bottle of whiskey and a walkie-talkie, dump it in the grave, cover the grave up, and they're going to mock him for two hours as they go off carrying on a pub crawl before they come back and dig him up. And then they all get wiped out in the car wreck. And Michael is left stuck in the coffin. And he is like the central character in that book. And he's in that coffin for several hundred pages. So I felt couldn't mock it up. I had to get in a coffin for myself and see what it's really like. I mean, most of us only really go in a coffin once and we don't come out again and talk about it. And so it was a firm of undertakers in Hayward Heath who I knew and I asked them. And I rocked up, I wasn't really rocking up, it was about 10 o'clock midweek. And there was this elderly guy there who was like the great grandfather. He was about 90. And all the rest of the family, it was a family business. They'd all gone out to funerals or to collect bodies or whatever. He said, oh yes, you've come to be put in a coffin, haven't you? Anyway, he helped me and they got the coffin ready and he helps me into it. He says, you really want me to put the lid on and screw it down? And I go, yeah. And I'm already feeling uncomfortable because it's narrower than I'd imagined. And he puts the lid on and I can hear the screws turning. And I'm now in complete pitch darkness. And, I, and I'd spoken to a coroner and I said, yeah, how long do you have? How much air do you have in the coffin? He said, well, he said, if you breathe normally, maybe and it's a decently made coffin, maybe three to four hours. But if you panic and hyperventilate, you could knock that down up to 40 minutes. Uh, I'm now pitch dark. And all these thoughts are going through my head. The first one is, what if he goes out for a coffin, gets run over, or he drops dead from a heart attack? He's pretty frail looking anyway. And then I think, is there a spider in here? And, I, and my mind was just, when, when he finally released me, I told him to leave me 30 minutes. And when that 30 minutes was up, honestly, I was just drenched in perspiration. But it, it did help me get the, the scenes, I think, authentic. You're, you're a lot braver than most, I can tell you that. <laughs> in terms of writing, how far ahead do you plan in terms of the number of books you're aiming or going to write? I'm always planning quite a long way ahead because with my travels, I often use, if I'm traveling to particular country on book promotion rather as a chance to do some advanced research and I recently signed a, a deal for five more Roy Graces um, and I already know the rough shape of what each of those is going to be and they may change I might come up with an idea I prefer but at the moment I'm editing um, the new Roy Grace which will be out in September uh, I'm 120 pages into the one after that and I'm already researching the, the next three as and when I get the opportunity. And it's been much harder, obviously, during COVID to research because normally I go out with the police on a fairly regular basis and with the other emergency services. And it's always easy to get into people's offices. But of course, everything's been so curtailed now. I've, I've heard that you listen to music while you write. Can you sort of take me through that process of what you listen to when you're writing different parts of the books? It's strange. I, I don't listen to music in the daytime. So when I'm writing in the morning, uh, but my kind of writing day is slightly back to front. You know, and my, my kind of prime writing time is six till about half eight in the evening. Um, like a stiff drink, you know, vodka martini, uh, and then maybe a couple of glasses of wine. And that's when I put on the music. And the first two thirds of the book, I have a really eclectic and constantly changing playlist the ranges can be anything from kinks to uh, modern jazz, dire straits, 
Alpha Morrison. Uh, and then the last third of the book, as I'm approaching the climax, I, I switched to opera, common opera. Not, I'm not a kind of esoteric with operas. So, you know, Mozart, some of the kind of good kind of sing-along stuff, Gounod's Faust. I find it, those arias really stirring and they just sort of bring something out inside me. I get goosebumps sometimes when I listen to really astonishingly great music. I just think, how, where did that come from? I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but do you have any tips for up-and-coming writers of, of any sort, or specifically crime novels? Yeah, I think biggest tip is to read, read, and reread the books of the kind that you, if you, like, you wish you'd written or would like to write. I think you know, we all writing is like like everything we learn from our peers, we learn we learn from past authors. I would say it's, writing is a little bit like a craft. You know, if you were going to be a carpenter, you know, you'd, you'd learn to make a table and, and, and your 10th table is going to be a lot better than your first. If you're going to be a doctor, you know, you're given a cadaver at medical school and, and, you know, and you spend a year dissecting that cadaver and seeing how every single bit of that cadaver is put together and works. And I always say, do the same with books. I did this when I started. I, I take the books that I really love and literally dissect them take them apart. And if you're going to be a car mechanic, you take apart the car, take apart the engine, put it back together. And I strongly advocate doing that with books. It's take the book, two or three books that really have influenced you and literally deconstruct them. You kind of touched on a little bit, but what, what do you like to read? I read constantly. And, 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 and not just, I read physical books uh, most at night when I binge read on a holiday, uh, when I'm in the gym or running or cooking i listen to audiobooks constantly I, I burn through them i read mostly obviously in the crime genre and i and i get sent all the time i get sent books by publishers of new authors that they're trying to promote which is quite exciting because i get to see new writers at quite an early stage i also have a, a number of established favorites i like michael Connolly. i like Ian rankin i guess the books that i reread from time to time also inspired is, is Brighton Rock, Science of the Lambs, which I think is probably the best crime novel ever written. But I also do like to read anything that's been a huge hit. So whether it's Fifty Shades of Grey or Whether Crawdad Sing, anything that's that's been a massive number one, I'll, I'll read to see what that was all about. And I do try to read classics as well. We're going on holiday shortly and I'm among my 20 books I'm taking is Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, but I've not read it and I feel bad about that. Now this question is, is completely off the topic of, of writing, off the topic of grace, but talk to me about alpacas. Am I right in thinking that you do have some, or you have had alpacas in the past? Well, we had a herd of alpacas and sadly when we, when we moved our main sort of home is Jersey now, although we still have a place in Sussex. When we um, moved, they're, they're a banned animal, so we had to give them away to friends. So we now have pygmy goats. Two are named after wines. We have Busco and Margot, and two are named after serial killers, Norman and Ted. We have a huge menagerie of animals. We have about 60 hens, about 30 ducks. We have cats, dogs. But I I find animals incredibly calming. You know, I, I write fairly dark stuff. And, and also, you know, the world is, is quite dark. And I remember waking up five, six years back on the, on the morning, listening to the morning news, and it was all about the Manchester bombing and how terrible that was. And, and you think, you know, how dark the world feels. And you go out into the field and hand feed the alpacas slices of apple. And we had emus as well, and giving the emus grapes out of the palm of the hand. You think these beautiful creatures, they don't know anything about all the 
because on in the world, you know, they're just happy to be out here in, in the in the daylight and eating their apple treats. And it's very grounding. And just as off topic as, as the last question, cars, is it fair to say you are a bit of a petrol head? And am I right in thinking that you've raced in the past or do you still race? Yeah, and I still race. Yeah, I'm, I'm a total petrol head. I've always loved cars. Um, I remember when I was... 90, I, I, I got banned from driving for three and a half years after racing a friend on the A3 at Guild, near Guildford and being called by a magistrate, uh, we were called two young hooligans the British public should be protected from. And then off we got our licenses back, he was killed two weeks later and that was a big sober up for me. But I, I love racing. I currently race uh, most, most years at the Goodwood Revival, which I love. Uh, I've got a 1962 Corvette, which I race, and a 1964 Mini Cooper S. And I, yeah, I've, racing is my escape. I think it's the only time. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen on sports. I, I love to run. I play tennis, swim. But all the time I'm doing those, I'm constantly thinking about the next chapter of my book. When I'm at a race meeting, like Brands Hatch or Silverstone, for a weekend, it's totally all-consuming. You know, if I'm heading down the hangar straight at 140 miles an hour, I'm not thinking about my next chapter. And, and I kind of find, I come back from a race meeting on the Monday morning, my brain just is just like I've been on holiday, completely fresh. Now for the final part of each episode, we are going to be asking guests their favourite things, places, etc. in Sussex from now or, or times gone by in a segment that we're calling Five of the Best. The first one is, if you were going for a coffee and a cake with a friend from out of town, where would you take them in Sussex? I do like Grand Hotel. I love the kind of history of the place, and, and there's, it's got a lovely conservatory room where, where you could sit and have coffee, and you can see the you can see that magnificent view of the of, of, of the sea. Um, that's uh, it's got a special place in my heart. I just love it. It's the grand old dame of Brighton in many ways. In your opinion, what is the best shop in Sussex? No question about about it. City books, bookshops have always been a massive part of my life, and I love a bookshop where the owners and the staff are passionate about books. Can you can ask them a question and they'll know everything about any book you want to know about. And Paul and Inga who run it are just those people. You just feel the love for books when you go in there. And it's impossible to go in there and not come out without about a handful of books. It's always a good sign. Whether it be for theatre or comedy or a concert, what's the best venue around? I love the Theatre Royal. I, when I was a kid, my family, my parents had regular seats on a Thursday night and I used to sit in that theatre and watch the curtain rise and dream that one day there'd be something I'd written that, that, that would be put on the stage there. And it's just been amazing with each of the, the plays that we've had. That it still feels like a dream come true. And it's a beautiful place. It's just a stunning. We're so lucky having it. If you're looking to escape the city, what's your favourite outdoors place to, to go and visit? I think one of the most inspirational places is Furl Beacon. Just going up there on a, on a glorious day where you've got the, the most incredible views of the South Downs. And, and all the walking kind of east from there you know, towards Seven Sisters and, and Beachy Head, to me they are something very quintessential Sussex about them. And lastly, for this section, whether, whether it be for a drink or a sit-down meal, what's the best restaurant, pub, bar, etc. in Sussex? My absolute favourite is English's. It's seafood restaurant. I'm, I'm passionate about seafood. I mean, we're lucky we've got... Am I allowed to name two places? Yes, yeah, of course you are. <laughs> okay, great. English's is really... It's old Brighton. It's in the centre of Brighton. It's still family-owned. If I'm ever having lunch with a villain, that's where I'll take them because it just feels right. <laughs> 
and it is steeped in, in the history of Brighton. Um, and then the other place which I love also is the Ginger Fox out um, near towards Henfield um, was originally a pub. And I have a tradition there of my real Roy Grace, Dave Gaylor, and I sit down at, at the same table um, and we plan each Roy Grace book sitting there. It has, the place has great food, the staff are delightful. It's part of the ginger group, which I think is among the very best food in the whole of Sussex. But it has a kind of special place in my heart. And I, we always start with a brand new moleskin notebook and start filling it in that pub. And lastly, looking ahead, what can the public expect from Peter James in the near future and beyond? And when, when can we expect the new series of, of Grace? Well, the new series of Grace is going to be the before coming on, which will be on air sometime in the next very few months. I don't know yet when I think ITV are obviously gauging to see what's going to be on BBC One so that they're not clashing with some with a line of duty or something like that. But I would guess it's going to be probably March time. And then I've got um, Perfect People, which is one of my favourites, the non-Roy Grace novels, but it's one of the favourite books I've written. That's being republished in May. And then I've got the new my new Roy Grace picture, you know, which is about the world of art forgery. That comes out in September. Um, I've got the stage play Looking Good Dead, which was at the Theatre Royal earlier this year in October. That starts back on tour with Adam Beale in it again on Jan 22nd, and that runs right through into the, into the summer. And then in January uh, 23, I've got a new stage play um, based on my novella Wish, Wish You Were Dead about Roy Grace and his family going on a holiday from hell. Uh, and that starts on national tour at the end of January in 23. And hopefully ITV will be filming another four episodes of Grace this year. So that's that's the sort of plan at the moment. Very exciting. Just for my own sake, very, very lastly, will we ever find out exactly what happened to Sandy? Yes, it does. Um, around about book 14, I think it is, uh, you, you find out quite a lot. It doesn't completely, it resolves it, but it sets another mystery spinning. That's to be expected, I suppose. Well, that, that's all uh, that I've got to ask, Peter. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real, real pleasure to speak to you. It's an absolute pleasure. Make sure to keep an eye out for the upcoming series of Grace on ITV, as well as those special cameo appearances. And tune in next week for our next episode, which will be released next Saturday. But until then, if you know someone from Sussex who you think has an interesting story to tell, then let us know. You can tweet us your guest suggestions at Brighton Argus on Twitter or directly to me at Chris underscore Fuller 11 and use the hashtag The Argus Podcast. And make sure to stay up to date with all the latest news from around Sussex on our website, theargus.co.uk. 